HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. So as the climate warms, that's the big fear in California, that we don't have this huge snowpack anymore that serves as our largest reservoir and slowly melts in the spring to fill up the reservoirs. We have some record high commodity crops, which should make all the farmers happy, but our costs have gone up so much that we don't see any more profit in anything, maybe less. You'll hear more about that story on this episode of No Farms, No Future, a podcast by American Farmland Trust. I'm John Piotti, President and CEO of American Farmland Trust. In each new episode, we'll take up a critical challenge faced by farmers. Join us to hear their voices as they face tough decisions facing their world and ours. For the rest of this episode, we'll turn it over to our producer, Gail Chaddock. California and much of the American West, Southwest, and Central Plains are living through the second historic drought in a decade. Some scientists call it a super drought, the driest period in 1,200 years. The snowmelt never came this year, throwing farmers back on their own wells and depleting groundwater. And the storied resilience of farmers out West is suddenly even more critical. Kara Heckert, is a native Californian and the granddaughter of a Nebraska dairy and corn farmer. After a long career working on agricultural sustainability and natural resource conservation in California, Kara joined the American Farmland Trust as Resilient Agriculture West Advisor. Kara, has drought always been such a critical concern for farmers and ranchers in the West? I'm 46 years old now. I've lived in the Western United States my whole life. So California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Montana, but 95% of that in California. I don't remember it coming up when I was a child. And that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't dry years, but it wasn't in the news. People weren't talking about it all the time. How are you in the AFT working with farmers on this? Part of my charge is to explore new opportunities to help farmers adapt to a changing climate. And that can range from anything from 
leveraging our research capabilities at AFT to better leveraging our federal and local policy work. It could also be looking at implementing new programs on the ground in the West to help farmers adapt to climate change and drought and wildfire. So it's a big umbrella and it's definitely in the exploratory phase, but we have so much to offer at AFT and so many good partners. And the need is so great in the West that we're trying to answer the call. Can you give us some examples of what's going on now? Well, I can think of a, a few things right off the top of my head that are happening, I think, not just in California. I know they're happening in other Western states like Arizona, Colorado, perhaps parts of the Pacific Northwest. Farmers in certain pockets have been very proactive on developing groundwater recharge systems. And I think that's something that AFT is really trying to help with scaling up putting in canals and infrastructure to bring flood water onto the farms to actually recharge the groundwater so they can be more sustainable in the future and have a much better supply of groundwater. Another thing that folks are doing is trying to figure out how to optimize the land that they're likely going to have to fallow. We're also talking with Greg Plotkin, AFT's Director of Digital Communications, now based in Nevada. Greg, before we get into drought... Can you tell us something about your own experience with farming? How did you get interested in farmland? Yeah, I grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut, uh, and worked on farms there from the time I was 14 till about 21, summers after college when I was going back. It was a originally a dairy farm about 100 years ago, but today it grows primarily sweet corn, tomatoes, cut flowers, and we actually planted a vineyard there about 15 years ago. It's why I do the work I do now. It wasn't just a job that I showed up at. It's where I spent my time after the workday ended. The farm was right on the Farmington River, so after we were done picking sweet corn for the day, we'd all hang out, swim in the river, have bonfires at night. So it was a big part of my life in my formulative years. What do both of you see coming if prolonged drought in the West continues, as some experts predict? What we're going to see is a pretty rapid acceleration of land going out of agricultural production. So that not only affects our crops, it affects our farmers, it affects our workers, and it affects our consumers. So, for example, in California's San Joaquin Valley, there's estimates because of the drought and new groundwater regulations that there could be anywhere from 500,000 to, I've heard, all the way up to 2 million the other day of farm acres that will be fallowed and taken out of production over the next five years. And I think that if we don't do anything about the drought, I think we're also going to see really dire impacts in cities where a lot of people on the West Coast live. We're going to see water restrictions, water rationing. We're going to see lawns being outlawed. We're going to see really tight restrictions on what people are able to do with water as we have a less reliable water supply and increasing people that rely on it, not just farmers, not just people in cities, you're going to have to make really difficult choices about who gets water and when. And I would just add one more thing just to expand on what it might mean for consumers, because lots of times I think our message is a challenge about losing agricultural land because there's still so much of it when you're driving down the road. You, you think, oh, it's, it's endless. We're going to have it forever. But 
I have already seen and imagine there's going to be even more increases for prices on, you know, produce and other things upwards of some people are saying 15 to 25% increase in the price to the consumer. And I think maybe that is what it's going to take to get the amount of attention that this issue needs, because it has, you know, is challenging at times to get the public's um, interest in it, because they're still able to get whatever they desire at the uh, grocery store every day. Well, and I think that's a really good point, because in a lot of places, you don't think of water necessarily as an agricultural input, right? You think about fertilizer and stuff like that. But in the West, like it is an input and there is a cost associated with water. And as the cost of getting water to your land becomes more expensive, that is a cost that needs to be passed down to someone and it'll typically be the consumer. And that's, I think, the really interesting thing about the West is that it is a market, right? There's a market for water, water has a cost. And in a lot of places across the US, you wouldn't even think about that, right? Like there was plenty of summers that I grew up farming in Connecticut that we didn't have to irrigate one time because we had that reliable of rains. And just the the entire climate in the West is is very different. And I think it's something that is difficult for folks in the Midwest and the East to, to really understand if they've never experienced it. So why did people move West to farm? Well, I think that it is incredibly rich, fertile soil in a lot of places, especially in the Central Valley of California, the Willamette Valley in Oregon. As you get into the Pacific Northwest, I think there was reliable water supplies as far as 50, 60 years ago. I think people saw a moderate climate. I think they saw good soil. I think they saw access to water. And they said, this looks like a really good place to maybe grow some crops or raise some animals. I would just add to that, we have a very long growing season. And the diversity of crop types It's diverse all throughout the West in California. It's over 400 different kinds of crops are grown here. So I think you get some really innovative farmers that want to really try out new things and experiment. I was just out on a farm, actually one of our board members a couple of days ago, who when they started farming that land, they were only growing two crops and now they're growing 12. You get a lot of those kinds of farmers in the West they're living on the edge with all the extremes, and they're really innovative and resilient. It's hard to overstate the contribution of California farmers to the food supply. California produces, what, two-thirds of all the fruit and nuts, a third of all the vegetables we eat in this country? And I think that California grows more than 90% of a couple dozen different crops. They're only grown there, and they're distributed across the country and across the world. Greg, Protecting California's capacity to grow food has long been a top priority for the American Farmland Trust. Can you tell us more about how your own work with AFT helps support sustainable farming practices and keeps farmers on the land? I'm a communicator at AFT, right? So that's my role. I'm the director of digital communications. And so the thing that gets me really excited is sharing the story is about all the good work that farmers, ranchers, food system people, I mean, even elected officials that are, you know, making decisions about the future of our natural resources in the West. There's a lot of great examples 
of people that are doing things the right way, that are making decisions that don't just benefit themselves, but benefit their larger community or the larger region. And I get really excited about putting those stories out to the people because I think it's a lot easier for an audience to connect with a person or a story than it is to try and understand the 150-year history of water rights in the West. Thank you, Greg. We're going to talk with Bruce Rominger, whose family has been farming in the California's Yolo Valley for five generations. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Stay with us for the rest of this episode of No Farms, No Future. HRN is thrilled to be the home of this new podcast because America's irreplaceable farmland grows our food, and supports a a trillion-dollar-a-year agriculture economy. Farmland is the foundation of our rural communities, providing jobs, recreational opportunities, and a deep connection to the land. Farms are also critical in the fight against climate change. Learn more about American Farmland Trust and how to get involved at farmland.org. Now let's return to today's show. Bruce Rominger and his brother Rick are committed to growing crops that sustain their farm, but also protect the environment and expand habitat for wildlife. Rominger Brothers Farms is nationally recognized as a model of sustainable farming practices. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us how drought is affecting your farm? Normally, this is a wonderful place to farm. We have the best soils in the world. We have a wonderful climate for growing dozens if not hundreds of different crops in this state but it is very difficult when you are short of water because we don't get rain in a normal year from say April May and to October and we rely on the stored rainwater that we get in the winter but if we don't get that rainwater for several years in a row then we have a lot of problems growing our crops I can see that can you tell us did your father have the same struggles with drought on this farm Yes, this is not anything new. We had a, a drought, a very severe drought in 1976 and 77 that he had to deal with. And uh, yeah, we had virtually nothing planted on our ranch. We didn't have nearly as many wells in those days. We've been drilling wells in the last 20, 30 years. But yeah, he grew very little in those years. Bruce, what did farming look like in the valley before the wells? Can you take us back to your own family's history here? Yeah, my great-great-grandfather came to California from uh, Germany in 1852. I think it was everybody had a little bit of livestock. I know my great-great-grandmother raised ducks because the first place they had here in Yola County was right on a slough. And so they had some ducks they had in the water there. They had pigs. They had a milk cow. And then they were growing grain. I mean, imagine they had a garden for themselves Probably everybody planted a few fruit trees, a walnut trees, and fig trees, and olive trees, probably some grapes. But the vast majority of your acreage, you were just sowing for wheat every fall. And that's what they could do until people like a guy named James Moore started diverting water out of Cache Creek with a dam he made out of brush here in Yolo <laughs> County in the late 1850s, I think. But that was a very small amount of acreage that could be fed by Moore's Ditch. But it slowly spread, but we really didn't get irrigation water where our farm is now 
the first canal was dug in like 1906 to 1910, something like that. But most land wasn't even leveled, and you didn't have a good way to level land. You had, all you had, your power was with mules. So it was a lot of just grain, sowing grain in the fall. If you had a place with lower along a slough, you tried to divert some water for some pasture land so your animals had some green grass in the summertime. But we have green grass in the winter. That's good. Uh, what changes have you seen in farming here in your lifetime? I'm old enough to see quite a few changes myself, but what my grandfather did, who I knew very well and knew how he farmed, is completely different than what we do. They were not really irrigating when he was farming. They were relying just on the winter rains. There wasn't the developed irrigation systems, or very few, uh, very small ones in those days, you know, in the early part of the 1900s. And he was growing, uh, he and his brothers had sheep, and they grew dry land grain. And then when they did get some land that could be leveled and irrigated, my father and his brother, my uncle, started leveling land for irrigation in the late 1940s. And that's when they started growing crops like alfalfa and sugar beets, milo or sorghum, corn, things like that, and even got into the rice business. So how do you decide what to grow on your land now? The cropping pattern changes as markets change, as new equipment is developed, as, you know, sometimes crops are no longer economical. We do not grow any dry land grain anymore. Can't make money doing that anymore. So we're growing processing tomatoes. We're growing sunflowers for seed contracts with seed companies. We do still grow some irrigated wheat. We grow some uh, oat hay even once in a while. We grow rice. Uh, We grow some corn sometimes. We have uh, almonds, or most people call them almonds. We have almond orchards, (laughs) and we have walnuts also. We do have wells on our ranch. So as long as the groundwater supply is there and it doesn't drop too far, we know we have a certain amount of water, but we do not have enough water out of the wells to irrigate all of our land. So we always know we're going to have something to plant, but it's just how much and where we plant it. So how are these extreme dry conditions affecting your crops? We have some record high commodity crops, which should make all the farmers happy, but our costs have gone up so much that we don't see any more profit in anything, maybe less. When you look at what fertilizer's done and fuel's done, and in California, our labor prices are very high. We're not getting ahead, even though we have the highest tomato price ever, very high wheat prices. It's still uh, very tight margins for us. For example, rice, which is one of our largest acreage crops, really becomes uneconomical with well water, which is more expensive for us. And so we just don't grow rice during these drought periods. In fact, well, we have one field. So we're down 90% on our rice acreage this year. So how do you get water in California? Well, to begin with, there are hundreds of different irrigation districts in California. So there's a lot of different situations. There are people that have very good water supplies and don't ever get short. That's very rare. And then there are people that never, ever get the water that maybe the state or the federal government promised them in their irrigation district. So there's a huge amount of variability. But for the most part, the water that's stored in reservoirs that then we use to irrigate during the summer is either snowmelt on the Sierra Nevada side and up at the north end of the Sacramento Valley near Mount Shasta, 
Or my situation is my runoff is stored in lakes and reservoirs in the coast range of California. So that's west of Sacramento. Those mountains really aren't tall enough for snow. So it's just the rainfall that falls in the winter that fills up these lakes and reservoirs that I rely on. Mm -hmm. So we know by April, we know how much water we're going to get or not get. But every situation's different. There's the primary, the biggest reservoir we have is actually the snow melt in the Sierras. So if you get obviously fewer storms coming through, you're going to have less snow. And also if you get warmer storms coming so that rains up higher and you don't have as much snow accumulation, that's also a problem. So as the climate warms, that's the big fear in California that we don't have this huge snowpack anymore that serves as our largest reservoir and slowly melts in the spring to fill up the reservoirs. So what does a day look like for you? What are you doing today when you're not talking to us? Well, we are in the middle of tomato harvest right now. So I was at my shop about 5.30 this morning, uh, met with my crew that was headed out to the tomato field, talked to some other people. The crew basically gets there between 5.30 and 6 and talked to different tractor drivers, irrigators on what they should be doing. Uh, once they all went their directions, I went out to the tomato field, checked on how much they had left in that variety to harvest, talked to the, the guy who writes the field tags and told him how many loads of which varieties to which canneries, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's very common. I, I spent some time with one of my uh, almond orchard irrigators this morning, talking to him about a problem. He's having a lot of problem with squirrels chewing up the drip lines right now. <laughs> So it's, it's variable every day, which makes farming interesting. I'm not going to the same desk, sitting in front of the same computer all day. I'm out in different fields at different times a day, you know, every day. It's long hours this time of year. We harvest tomatoes 24 hours a day. So I'll be out at six o'clock tonight at the tomato field, also getting the night crew started. Now, hopefully they don't have any mechanical problems or breakdowns and I don't get called in the middle of the night to go fix anything. Um, but I have some good foremen uh, that usually can take care of that stuff, but I'm still, you know, on call basically 24 hours a day this time of year. I see. You know, many consumers facing cutbacks in their own lives are wondering if farmers are taking too much of the water. That is, what, 80% of the water that's used for business and homes, of which 20% goes to tree nuts like almonds? Well, the problem with that picture is farmers aren't drinking the water. They're not using it to fill their swimming pools. It's growing food for you. Now, people complain with a crop like almonds where they say, well, they're putting all this water on almonds, and then they're just exporting those. And I understand that, that issue, and, and why people don't think that's right. But on the other hand, farmers don't control these markets. It's very competitive. And so if I have a crop that's more profitable than another one, I, I really don't have a choice but to grow that crop because otherwise I'll be out of business. Hmm. The other farmers around me will grow that crop, make more money, be able to lease more land. you know. And so I won't be in business very long if I don't always try and grow the most profitable crop for my situation. So if almonds make more money than tomatoes or melons or lettuce or wheat or corn, Farmers are going to do it, and that's the way the market is. If people quit eating almonds, which I hope they don't, that would be a problem. But it is actually a very good, healthy food. So this is a complex situation with a beloved product and intense competition among growers. 
One of the signature aspects of Rominger Brothers Farms is your willingness to invest in protecting and enhancing the environment. With all the volatility you're facing with climate and market conditions, are these investments still viable? Personally, on our farm, we have tried to do a lot of things uh, to make our farming more environmentally friendly. We have been recognized for a lot of the wildlife habitat work we've done, kind of in non-crop areas, in some rangeland, where we've put in miles of hedgerows and planted oak trees where they were logged, you know, in the 1870s or 80s on some of this rangeland, and and tried to bring back some of the biodiversity and the you know the wildlife that used to be here. However we still need to grow our crops and be economical. So we can't really do things that hurt our bottom line in any significant way. I can't just decide to take out fields and plant them all back to wildlife, native trees and things like that, because I have to stay in business. Of course you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to continue to farm or to help us and others figure out the way to do it sustainably. In our last minutes... Is there anything we've not talked about that you would like to say to our listeners? One of the things I'd like to mention, we talked a little bit about farmland preservation, and I I think consumers in this world, the non-farm population, I hope they appreciate how important it is for us to keep the farmland we have as productive land. This pandemic might have showed people a little bit, especially when we had supply chain issues, that food is very important, that we can't take it for granted. Even in this country where we have these unbelievable supermarkets with an unbelievable variety, it's still possible that we could have problems with food in the future. And our, it might be our kids or grandkids. And once we lose this land to suburbs and roads and, and shopping malls, we're probably not going to get it back. And so it's so critical, especially in the Sacramento Valley where we have this unbelievably productive land, to not pave it over. You know, even in our county, which has a reputation and a history of pretty restrictive land use that prevents anybody from just willy-nilly subdividing property, I think it's still not where it should be. We have our county government that talks a good line about land preservation, but still approves projects that, to me, make no sense. And they're chasing the bottom line, too. And so they need money for their coffers. And so if they think something will bring them more sales tax dollars, boom, there it goes. And there goes another 40 acres of farmland. And, and we don't get those back. And so that's something that we really, as a society, we need to protect. And it doesn't matter if I'm farming this land or my descendants are farming this land 100 years from now. Somebody better be farming this land and growing food for the rest of us. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for your time and the long days you're putting into getting food to people who need it and protecting the land for the future. Greg and Kara, back to you. What role can the public play with their own choices to help sustain a healthy food system for the future? I think the responsibility for combating worsening drought and climate change is something that's often laid at the feet of farmers and policymakers. But in reality, consumers and the choices they make about food play an essential role. Farmers are not growing products for themselves, right? They're growing products for people that eat them, that, you know, they fuel their cars, they use to make their clothes. And so to ignore the role that consumer choice and consumer preferences have in not just what crops farmers grow, but how they grow them, I think really does a disservice. We have a lot of power as consumers. And I think 
first we need to recognize that power and then think about how we can utilize that power to help stave off a water crisis in the West. I think we're at a point where a lot of larger brands are making the environment and making the way that food is grown a big part of their marketing and their brand. And so I think it allows consumers to seek out products that are more environmentally friendly or maybe are grown in ways that reflect their own values. And so I think that's something that's relatively new, right? When you think about food marketing in the past, it's like, this is the best product, right? Or this is the cheapest product or this is the most useful product. But now we're hearing this product is carbon neutral or this product is environmentally friendly, grown with free trade cotton or whatever. I think it's becoming part of the fabric of consumerism in using your dollars to basically buy products that reflect your values. And, and one could argue local and in-season is obviously a benefit to our natural resources. The more things that you have to get from far away, the more resources that's going to take to bring them here. And those are the more obvious choices. I still think that sometimes it's hard for the consumer to know what kind of practices a farmer or a brand might be using. But as Greg says, it's changed pretty dramatically in the last decade or so. So you're seeing it more and more, but there still needs to be more done to kind of illuminate the consumer on what they actually are buying. Kara and Greg, thank you for helping us work through this issue. And we look forward to talking with you again. And thank you, Bruce Rominger, for your participation in this podcast. Now I'll turn you back to John Piotti for some words about our next episode. The U.S. is losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. If trends continue, 18 million acres will be lost by 2040. In our next podcast, we'll take up a new report by American Farmland Trust and consider what needs to happen to ensure a stable food supply and to build our cities and suburbs to prevent wasteful sprawl. If we remain on our current development path, we will ultimately run out of land to grow our food. But long before that, we risk running out of the farmland we need to heal an environmentally degraded planet. We invite you to join us. That's next time on No Farms, No Future, the podcast of American Farmland Trust, created in collaboration with the Heritage Radio Network and produced by The Food Voice. Executive producer Louisa Kasdan and audio director and composer Michael Moss. I'm Gail Chaddick. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.